0: Uh, Just to get some kind of ambient noise, yes. Don't take it personally, please. No, I think um, yeah. moving back to Wednesday will help. Um, so, yes. Welcome to the November session of the 2013 Geriatric Mental Health Series, Treating People with Alzheimer's Disease Working with Preserved Abilities, presented by Dr. Robert Santulli. Uh, the learning objective for this session is to describe how to work with preserved abilities when treating individuals with Alzheimer's disease including features of people with Alzheimer's disease that remain relatively stable despite the disease and the importance of working with preserved abilities and methods for doing so. This program is sponsored by the Northern New England Geriatric Education Center, which is funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration, also known as HRSA. This funding allows us to offer the program at no charge. And we work to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interdisciplinary educational program targeted to the healthcare workforce. In order for you to receive credit for this program, you must be signed in. So be be sure you signed your attendance sheet at your site. Um, If you are web streaming this from home or your office, then make sure you complete the evaluation uh, today or tomorrow in order to receive credit. Um, At sites, you should have received an evaluation form that we'll need back after this session. If you're at a remote site, please hand it in to your liaison. And you should have also received a sheet that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits or contact hours online. Be sure to keep the sheet so you can refer to it later and anyone streaming online, you can get in touch with us at the GEC and we'll help you out. If you have a cell phone, please silence it now if you haven't already. Remote sites audio should be muted, it sounds like it is, everyone seems quiet. If you have a question during or after the presentation, unmute to get our attention. The next session is going to be on December 3rd. Dr. Ben Nordstrom will discuss drug use and abuse in older adults. And we also have a full day event on that topic on November 13th at the Fireside Inn in West Leb. And you can still register for that through the end of this week. Um, You can go to our website, nnegec.org, upcoming programs, and check that out. If you have any questions, get in touch with us. None of the planning committee members for this series, including the speaker, have any influencing financial relationships to disclose, and no off-label uses will be discussed. Our speaker is Dr. Robert Bob Santulli, a geriatric psychiatrist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and associate professor of psychiatry at the Geisel School of Medicine. He's the founder and director of Memory Cafe, which is held in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and serves as a psychiatric consultant to a number of nursing homes, facilities, and communities throughout New Hampshire and he's worked with the GEC extensively to, to provide programming on Alzheimer's, dementia, and a range of mental health issues. Dr. Sancho.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you Laura. <clears throat> thank you and uh, glad all of you are here and around the different sites. Uh, this is a little bit of a work in progress and I'm not sure if I'm ready yet to meet all of the objectives that Laura described, but I'm <laughs> Working on that, and may give a further. They
0: were pretty vague. <laughs> they were pretty vague.
1: Well, I may give a further uh, presentation on this next year sometime. When we think about Alzheimer's disease, we're usually thinking about what's wrong with the person—the impairment view of Alzheimer's, I would call it. We are looking at the patient's uh, problems with cognition, memory difficulties, language problems, and so forth. There are functional difficulties in IADLs and activities of daily living, and neuropsychiatric symptoms, mood disturbances, abnormal behaviors, all of which are not rare in this disease, unfortunately. I mean, maybe I'll turn the lights down. Is it, really too, dark? Is it too dark. No, that, that's too dark. It's fine. it's fine. Oh, it's fine. Okay. Okay. This seems a little bright here. Um, i back. And, but. <coughs> And this is really what we would refer to as the medical model. It's disease-focused, emphasis on symptoms and signs of illness. What's the deviation from the premorbid state? We think about what's wrong with this person. Now, the medical model is fine. If I go to the doctor with a stomachache, I want the doctor to be thinking about what's wrong with me, to focus on my signs and symptoms and and how that's different and, and trying to come up with a diagnosis and a treatment. Uh, But in Alzheimer's disease, I think it has other effects to adopt this medical model, which is, is what we practice with in many, many ways. For one thing, I think the emphasis on impairment increases the sense of stigma surrounding Alzheimer's disease. Focusing on impairment can taint the view of the family and others around the person and further decrease the low sense of self-esteem that people with Alzheimer's already suffer from. Even if they aren't able to describe it in those terms, they may or may not be able to, but uh, they certainly feel it in the vast majority of cases in my experience. And overall, this sense of of looking at what's wrong increases the sense of nihilism and hopelessness surrounding Alzheimer's disease. What we think about is what's gone versus what's left, the emptiness of the glass that's got half the amount of liquid in it, the half-empty glass rather than half-full. And what I want to focus on is having a different view of this disease that focuses on preserved capabilities and traits. As I said, this impairment or deficit model is consistent with the medical model of disease, and it's what we practice in pretty much all other aspects of medicine. Uh, and yet, the approach that I'm suggesting, which focuses on preserved abilities and traits, is more consistent with something referred to as person-centered uh, Alzheimer's care, the person-centered approach. Person-centered care is Uh, an approach to patients with Alzheimer's that acknowledges their personhood in all aspects of their care, considers the personality of the person with Alzheimer's as increasingly concealed rather than lost, I'll come back and talk about that. It offers shared decision-making, a hot topic in medicine now, certainly at our place. It interprets the behavior of the individual with Alzheimer's From the viewpoint of that person rather than from our viewpoint and it prioritizes the relationship as much as the care tasks all of which are extremely important ways of looking at the disease now the person-centered approach has its limitations I think in some ways it slightly romanticizes the person with Alzheimer's or idealizes the person I think there's little evidence, unfortunately, that the personality of the person with Alzheimer's is increasingly concealed rather than lost. Unfortunately, the effect of the disease on the brain is to really wipe out significant areas of personality, although it's very, very important to have that attitude so that one looks for what's preserved. Person-centered care often has sort of an overzealous attitude about not using medications, about the sort of the anti-medical model approach. And I think it, there are times clearly when medicines are overused, but there are times clearly when medicines can be very helpful in people who are suffering. So like with many sort of uh, new or, or supposedly new approaches to Alzheimer's care, there can be a certain dogmatism attached to this. If you read the literature, you actually go to the school where you are supposed to learn. Person-centered approach and get a get a certificate in that. It's a little bit dogmatic, but I think aside from that, it's a terribly important concept, and there's a lot of good in it that we should be really thinking about all the time. This over here is "Dementia Reconsidered," is the book by Thomas Kitwood, who really began this approach and who is no longer living, but has written extensively. Uh, from England on the, person, on the person-centered approach, and I would encourage taking a look at some of his work. So, rather than go in a very detailed way into the person-centered approach, as I, and I don't—I think it's important with all of the different schools of approach for uh, uh, to people with Alzheimer's disease. It's important to take what's good from them, and there's a great deal of good in the person-centered approach. Let's just look at the focus. On preserved abilities and traits. What can he or she still do, not what can't he or she do? How is he or she still the same as before, not how has he or she changed? This is a more positive or holistic view of the person with the illness. In some ways, I think we already practiced this. We think about a couple of areas uh, that are very important in our day-to-day work. When we give cognitive tests to people, we, we score them based on what they still accomplish. So that if somebody gets a, uh, takes a uh, Moca test, for example, or a mini-mental, and gets a score of 20 out of 30, 20 means they've got 20 out of the 30 points right. There are two-thirds still there. We don't score it as 10 wrong, we score it as 20 right. That's, that's the custom in thinking about this. And, and if you think about it, I think that's a good way to do it. The other thing that I think already uh, causes us to already focus in this way is how we use medications and what we say about them. Now, some of this is because of the limitations of the current medications. Uh, unfortunately, they don't cure dementia, but what they do and how we talk about them in general is that medications, anti-dementia drugs like donepezil and uh, memantine and rivastigmine and so forth, that these medications help preserve what is there, preserve what remains rather than replace losses that have already occurred. We aren't able to replace losses, but we put a great deal of emphasis when we talk about medication On preserving what's still there and that indeed but but all the rest of the time we tend to think about the disease in terms of what's not there this is the approach that I think makes sense in all the respects of thinking about it so again what remains preserved abilities what the individual is able to do and preserved traits or maybe characteristics aspects of the personality or the self that remain unchanged despite the illness. These are the areas that I would like to focus on. What are some preserved abilities? Well, those things that, I don't mean to be repetitive, but those things that the individual remains able to pursue despite significant cognitive impairments. Usually these are activities that were learned a long time ago They've been practiced over and over and over again throughout life, and they generally provide a sense of pleasure or pride for the individual. They're often central to his or her sense of identity. We'll talk about some examples of this in a little while. Well, right now, here they are. So what are some examples? And this is just a small list. It might be playing a musical instrument. This is a very important one, as as we'll talk about later, singing. Another musical instrument, I suppose, the voice. It might be, usually in the case of females, but not exclusively, handwork. Knitting, crocheting, tatting. I put up on the slide there a picture of a tat. And this is not the one that, uh, or one of the ones that I received, but I had a patient years ago, who's no longer living, who was marvelous at tatting and would make snowflakes for me. I would see her once a year to check out what she was doing, and she would always bring me down one of these wonderful, delicate, detailed tats. Of snowflakes that look just like this, and they're, they're uh, amazingly detailed. This is a woman who was in the moderately severe, if not severe, stage of Alzheimer's who really couldn't carry on a conversation, really didn't know left from right, but had preserved this ability in an amazing way, and it gave her a tremendous sense of gratification. She'd obviously been doing it for a very long time, and she was still able to do it other preserved abilities, playing tennis, golf, maybe other sports, playing cards. We're always amazed, but it's, a, it's happened with all of us who take care of people with dementia, that we'll have patients who still play bridge despite being quite cognitively impaired. And one would think you would need to be able to remember the hands going around, which is a short-term memory effect. But somehow, for a person who's done this for their, you know, decades and decades, For some, not all, that that ability can remain. Or other card games, or dominoes, or playing with, or doing jigsaw puzzles. Cooking, the ability to cook may well be something that's preserved, particularly in, again, more commonly women, but not exclusively, who've been cooking their entire adult lives or, or whole lives, and have really centered their identity around it. I always remember a patient I saw many years ago in the clinic, a woman who had moved up to Vermont with her son from the Bronx, and she was quite demented, and we went through, and this is the resident clinic, we went through our usual cognitive exam, and and she did very poorly, and her son said in some frustration, everybody asks her, do you know who the president is, and she has no idea who the president is, but ask her how to make a meatball, as an Italian And uh, indeed, she was still able to make very good meatballs, apparently. So cooking, bike riding, walking, there's a whole list of preserved activities. This is just as many that I could fit on the slide. But, But if we're creative about it, and this is an important thing, we can come up with a great deal. Everybody has some, I would say no matter how mild they are, no matter how far along they are. Fewer though, as people get further along in the disease, but, it's, but uh, only at the latest stages is it hard to find anything that's still preserved. So one might ask, how can activities be preserved when memory is so severely impaired? How did my woman who tatted, uh, how was she able to make such beautiful work and not be able to tell me what day it was or where we were or basically anything that was going on. To understand that, we have to understand that there are, there's memory and there's memory. There are different kinds of memory. What is the most impaired in Alzheimer's disease and what we test for and what we think of as wrong in Alzheimer's or as damaged in Alzheimer's disease is what is called explicit memory or declarative memory, the ability to declare something or explicitly explain something, knowing what something is, knowing what the name of the president is, for example. This type of memory is housed largely in the areas that you see lit up over there on the slide, uh, the hippocampus, the temporal lobe, Some of the frontal lobe and the uh, the parietal and uh, the uh, parietal lobes, these areas tend to be significantly damaged in Alzheimer's disease. So it's no surprise that the things that these parts of the brain control are parts are those tasks that are lost. Yet, there's another type of memory that's very important, which we sometimes colloquially refer to as muscle memory, which is technically referred to as procedural memory. And procedural memory reflects our knowledge of how to perform certain skills and actions. It involves knowledge that may not be expressed in words. Maybe it can't be expressed in words. It's it's also called implicit memory. Something that's implied is not spoken. play. And if procedural memory, I'm, I'm sorry, if declarative memory is knowing what something is, procedural memory is knowing how to do it. And this is uh, the type of memory that uh, is so important in people who have Alzheimer's disease. People who have this, and we all do, we rely on it every day, all the time, uh, in Uh, is what allows us to ride a bicycle perhaps, maybe drive a car, although that's a very uh, difficult issue with Alzheimer's, play a musical instrument, swim, hold a pen, play, catch, all different kinds of things. Where is this located? Primarily in the basal ganglia of the brain, deep in the brain, and the cerebellum. These are areas that are essentially untouched in Alzheimer's disease. So it shouldn't surprise us that our ability to do these things is far less impaired than those that require explicit memory or declarative memory. So some of the contradictions that this brings up, because you know, activity involves some interaction between your procedural memory and your and your uh, declarative memory. So it might be, and these are all examples from patients of time, over the years, you might be able to play tennis, but you have absolutely no ability to keep score. You might not be bad at the game, but don't ask what the score is because there's no way you, <coughs> you can remember. You might be able to play bridge, but you can't name the suits or articulate what the bidding rules are. Play dominoes without being able to say, if somebody asks, how many dots are there on the highest tile? Tile. You might be able to do very delicate handwork, like tatting or knitting or sewing of some kind, but you really couldn't describe the steps to another person. It's like they say if you, if you, and think of this in our own sense about riding a bicycle. For some, for example, it's been it's, I've heard it said that if you if you have to describe if you have to think about and describe how to ride a bicycle, you probably lose your ability to ride the bicycle. It's implicit. It's in there. You don't really have access to it, or you may hear from piano players. I don't know this piece, but my fingers do. That's not in the fingers, technically, it's in the basal ganglia or the cerebellum, but it's certainly not passing through the cognitive, conscious parts of the brain. Ask somebody who's played the piano, where do you put your fourth finger of your right hand on the first chord? In such and such a piece, I have have no idea. I need the piano in front of me to then figure it out. So, again, people may be able to play golf reasonably well, but wouldn't be able to tell you half an hour later who won. Again, these are examples from my practice. Play a composition on the piano, but if you hear the same piece on the radio, you wouldn't recognize it. You wouldn't be able to say what the name of it is. You may be able to ski with skill, but not be able to determine when to get off the chairlift or how, or make appropriate judgments about the difficulties of different trails. And this is where some of the problems can occur between pure procedural memory and explicit memory. Many activities do involve both procedural and and declarative memory, so that For example, individuals tend to remain at the same level and perhaps slowly decline. Somebody who plays the piano isn't going to be able to learn new pieces on the piano. They'll be able to play what they've always played. They may play it quite well, maybe not as well as they once did, but they can't learn a new piece. Certain activities can become hazardous if the procedural memory is there, but declarative memory is not. So that, for example, as I mentioned skiing, or biking. You may be able to know how to pedal a bike but you don't know how to get home if you get around the corner. Or a common one, leaving the stove on while cooking. Or or simply forgetting to put in certain ingredients. So supervision can be needed and may be important so that some of these activities can be continued. Now this is an article from Dementia and Geriatric Cognitive Disorders. Looking at spared and impaired abilities in community dwelling patients entering the severe stage of Alzheimer's disease. So they just looked at and, and sort of inventoried what people could do as they were reaching these very late stages of the disease. And what they found was that the most spared activities in late stage people were the ability to locomote, to walk and have some sort of social interaction. Yet all of the things that we think about that are symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, the 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 items on the right, praxis, orientation, memory, language, these are all typical symptoms, and these were long gone in people reaching a later stage of disease. But the ability to interact socially remained. The ability to walk remained. This moves us from looking at what people can do to characteristics that they may have. Let's uh, let's think about some of these preserved traits. Social interaction was one I just mentioned. These are very variable and certainly not true in everybody. And this is where, well, in both of these groups, a lot of variability occurs from person Mm -hmm. to person. And that's why, as I'll get into at the end of this talk, we need to inventory these. But for some people, the ability to remain socially appropriate and to enjoy social interactions remains intact until very late. This is the person who can have a nice conversation with you for 30 seconds and enjoy it. But after five minutes, the conversation is quite repetitive and doesn't go anywhere. But... The sense of social interaction, the sense of pleasure that the person with dementia seems to get from interacting may be there. Now, there are many people who don't have that, but there are some who do. Another one of the preserved traits are people's personal values. I'll show you something on that in a moment. The capacity for humor, people who have been funny. I think of a patient of mine who's now so far along that he really cannot talk coherently. But right up until the point where he lost that ability, he can't walk, he can't do anything, he's really in the late stages of the disease. But right before he reached that point, he maintained what he'd had his whole adult life, which is a wonderful sense of humor. And he could make me laugh, genuinely, not just in a patronizing way of wanting to laugh at him to make him feel good, but genuinely say, he could say genuinely funny things when he had no clue About much of anything else. Other traits that individuals might have, you might think of these as personality traits or characteristics, might be altruism or other traits, and on the other flip side of it, there may be some less positive traits like the need to be in control. This is one of the unfortunate things, one of the unfortunately preserved qualities that occurs in many, not all people with Alzheimer's is that someone who has always been a type A person, needing to be in control, tends to remain that way when they develop the disease. And that may not be so easy to manage. People's aesthetic appreciation, ability to not perhaps perform music or art, but to be able to appreciate it uh, as a spectator or a listener. Or poetry or other things like that so preserved traits involve aspects of the personality or the self that remain unchanged despite the illness and like I said they're often very good traits very wonderful traits but sometimes there's some traits that are not so wonderful it is certainly possible that some people who've had difficult personality features will those will may fade when they develop dementia, but they may not, and the opposite can happen as well. So there's not, there's no general rule that applies here. Some of these things that I've labeled as traits it sometimes may be hard to tell what's a what's an ability versus what's a trait. For example, the ability to enjoy music is that a trait or is that an ability? Is that an activity? It, it, There's no firm division, nor is there any great need to make a division between these two. It's just as a matter of simplicity to talk about them, realizing there's a lot of overlap, and it's somewhat arbitrary what we call them. We could simply call them preserved things, but that doesn't sound very elegant. I mentioned before in looking at these examples of preserved traits, personal values, Here's a study that was just presented earlier this year at uh, the American Psychiatric Nurses Association. It's a clever study, very small study, but I think it makes a point that is valid. Twelve subjects with mild to moderate dementia were given cameras and told to take photos and talk about them. They could take photos of whatever they wanted, and that was, I don't know what the time frame was. didn't say take 12 photos in five minutes, but it was a a longer period of time. So people could pick and choose what they wanted to take pictures of. And that's what they were instructed to do. And then the, uh, the subjects were interviewed. Their photos were examined. And it was revealed that in doing so, that these individuals, in some cases who had moderate dementia, were still able to demonstrate that they had the same values that they would had when they were younger before they were demented whether that was the importance of family or friends or their value of their pets or love of nature, spirituality, independence, whatever it was that these were relatively fixed things among this group of individuals and the point of this study is, and I wait to see it in print, this is just an abstract but a very interesting one, uh, is that Who we are, as defined by what we value, may not change so much even when we aren't able to talk about it so well. And that's the point of the the photographs. It may be hard for somebody with Alzheimer's to talk abstractly about how he or she values his family or his friends. But if he has been asked to make 12 pictures and four of them are of his family, you can see in that that the the value is still there. By comparing what their family members would say about them prior to their illness, that's how it was established that they were able to show this consistency of values, even into the moderate stages of dementia. I mentioned before the importance of music and other visual arts, and I want to show you a video now, a clip that you may have seen, but I think is just so interesting and enjoyable that I apologize if you've seen it before, but you're going to see it again. So I'd rather have that for him.
2: We first see Henry, inert, maybe depressed, unresponsive, and almost unalive.
3: Henry. Yeah. Henry. Yes. Uh, I found your music. Uh-oh.
4: You want, you want your music now? Okay, let's,
3: let's try your music, okay? And
2: then you tell me if it's too loud or not. And then he is given an iPod containing, we know, his favourite music. And immediately he, he lights up his face assumes expression, his eyes open wide, he, uh, he starts to, um, to sing and to rock and to move his arms, and he's being animated by the music.
3: And he used to always sit on the unit with his head like this. He didn't really talk to much people, and then when I introduced the music to him, this is his, his reaction ever since. <laughs>
2: Philosopher Kant once called music the quickening art and Henry is being quickened. He's being brought to life.
4: Yeah.
3: I'm gonna take the music for one second, okay? Just All to right. ask you a few questions. Okay. I'm gonna give it back to you.
2: huh. Okay. The effect of this doesn't stop because when the uh, the headphones are taken off, uh, Henry, normally mute and virtually unable to answer the simplest yes or no questions, is quite voluble. Henry. Yeah? Um, do you like the iPod? Do you like the music you're hearing?
4: Yes. Tell me about your music. Well, I don't, I don't, don't, I don't have one, I mean. Uh, uh, Do you like music? Yeah, I'm crazy about music. You play beautiful music, beautiful sound. Beautiful. did
2: you play music when you were? Uh, were you, did you like music when you were young?
4: Yes, yes, I went to big dances and things. W- what was your favorite music when you were young? Uh, well, uh, well, I guess uh, well, Cab Calloway was my number one band guy. I like it. the the holly, the 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 ah. Uh, yeah, what was your fav-
2: favorite Cab Calloway song?
4: Oh. I'll be home there for oh, you Christmas. You can count on me with plenty of snow. Near Presents present, a brand new tree. Out. So in some sense, Henry is restored to
2: himself. He is uh, uh, remembered. Uh, who he is and uh, he's he's reacquired his his identity for a while
4: through the
2: power of music
4: What, what does music do do to you? Give me the feeling of love No, no man, I figure right now the world need to come into music Singing you got beautiful music here, Beautiful oh lovely and uh, I feel the band of love, dream the Lord came to me, made me holy, I'm a holy man, so he gave me this sound. So he say, i meet you. And say, Rosalie, won't you love me? Rosalie, won't you be sweet
2: and kind? With this beautiful new technology, you can have all the music, which is significant for you, in something as big as a matchbox or, or whatever. And I think this 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 may be very, very important. In uh, helping to animate, organise, uh, and uh, bring a sense of identity back to people who are who are out of it, otherwise music will bring them back into it, into their own personhood, their own memories, their own autobiographies.
1: Well, that's. Uh a very dramatic example, but not an isolated case by any means. This is programmed with the iPod. It started in the New York area and it's spreading around. And uh, it's such a simple technology, such a simple approach to playing people's favorite music. Playing elevator music doesn't work the same way. You need to know enough about the individual to know what they have enjoyed and it's been shown to have dramatic effects. This is an article, How Sweet the Sound, that is a review article looking at the effects of music listening on persons with dementia, and looks at many different studies, which I'll show you in a sec, and the impact is that it decreases agitation, lowers the need for the use of PRNs in a nursing home environment, increases engagement in what's, alive, what's going on around the individual, that certainly was with Henry, increasing positive affect, increasing activity-related talking. Again, we certainly saw that with Henry, who, if you watch the whole tape, he'd been in the nursing home about 10 years. This is a man who's quite far along, as they describe, who really had an awakening with this. These are some of the studies I realize you can't read that, but just to to. No, there are many, many papers in literature now on looking at the impact of music on people with dementia. Well, this is not the only uh, art form that is uh, shown to have an effect. What about the visual arts? Here's an article that was quite interesting. Preserved painting creativity in an artist with Alzheimer's disease. Again, we're talking about preserved abilities. And this describes, an unusual person, but not an unusual phenomenon. This is a case of uh, Dana, or Danae Chambers, a highly talented and well-known Canadian portrait painter. The painting on the left is a picture of Prime Minister Elliot Trudeau made in the 1980s prior to her illness. When she did become ill and she was told indeed she might have dementia She replied, it doesn't matter if I forget words or not remember things because I get my enjoyment out of the visual world. This was a true artist. Uh, This is the artist on the right at at a young age. This is uh, the the painter. This is a self-portrait on the left, painted uh, just months before she was institutionalized because of her severe dementia. Talks about difficulties with figure foamed, which has to do with figure ground uh, dynamics, and so forth. But I still think for someone with a mini mental score of 8, this is severe dementia. That's a remarkable picture. Now, can everyone with a mini mental score of 8 paint that way? No, most of us can't paint that way with mini mental scores of 30. That's not the point. The point is that people have preserved abilities. This is an unusually well-preserved case, but it is not unique. This, by the way, is the artist in the nursing home in Toronto in 2011. Believe it or not, this picture appeared in the Toronto Star. Why did it appear in the Toronto Star? Uh, This has nothing to do with my talk, but it's because she was actually sexually assaulted by an aide at the nursing home, and the newspaper made the decision, with the support of her family, to publish her name, because she's a famous person in Canada, Was she passed away last month, uh, figuring that that was more, had more of an impact than simply saying another, another old lady was assaulted in the nursing home. This is a, a famous and well-loved Canadian figure. The man who assaulted her got a year in jail. Anyway, that's unrelated. Here's something else to look at. This is about the Metropolitan Museum of Art's program. Meet me at the MOMA program. An unexpected gift.
3: And then the people who take us around open up, you know, visions that we didn't see before, things that we didn't know about before. So it's it's just incredible
5: and there's like, in a way, coming home, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah,
4: because we've been here many times.
3: We've well seen many times over the last couple of years. Um, and some of you are new to this program. But before I tell you anything about it, I'd like to go around and just tell me one word that comes to your mind when you look at this. Now, yeah, what's one word that comes to your mind when you look at this? Metallic. Metallic. Very good. Okay, I'm
5: going to turn it metallic. Florence, what's a word that comes to your mind? Huge shapes. Huge. Right? Any words? Marilyn, what's one word that comes to your mind? Very stylized. Stylized. Circles and squares and uh, diagonals and diamonds.
3: One of the biggest joys, I guess, of, of leading a program like this is that you get to watch this interaction between couples. And you know, because it's a program for people with dementia, that they're going through some really like bones, like difficult times. Yet while they're in the program, you, you just away. watch yeah. them. Like, they're why? touching each other affectionately. They're laughing. They're telling jokes that sometimes they'll share with you, and sometimes they want to keep them to themselves.
4: you got five teeth on one side and four teeth on the other. You know,
3: she got a different <laughs> <laughs> I'm counting. you, see? And you can see that you're treating them like valid, um, important adults. You're treating them with the respect that adults deserve. And sometimes you can't even tell who's the person with dementia and who's the caregiver. And that's really amazing because what it means is that everyone is interacting on the same level. And it's a level that's very high. It's it's an adult level. And um, with a little humor and a lot of openness, you you just get around
4: the obstacles that Alzheimer's presents see if I can describe this, but George today wasn't in such a good mood when we got here and it was very crowded and he just kind of didn't want to go and was a little upset. And then the minute he started looking at the art and Carrie uh, pointed things out, he just got so involved in it and started looking for things himself. And it brought it, I was just thinking how it brought something out. For him, it brought something from inside out.
3: Today, the other thing I really liked was seeing Hal um, respond to one of the works with, with music. And, Hal, what was your word? Musical. musical. Musical? What do you say about musical? <laughs> I was going to say metallic, but musical is another good Well, we've
4: got a lot of rhythms there, you know. A lot of pop, 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 and boom,
3: Right. And the bang, and then even the triangles, you know, are very, very musical. To me, it's very rhythmic and musical. And and the fact that he made that translation from pattern to music without being prompted is just amazing. It's, it's such a perfect example of what you get with this audience that people are are less afraid to to give a wider interpretation.
5: And what I find, particularly, is that it brings out the very best of their thinking that isn't gone.
0: We find that people are traveling from all over, um, you know, the five boroughs and even um, farther to come to this program because there really aren't enough programs like this out there. And um, museums that have Access divisions already can very easily take something like this on and other places that at least have one dedicated person um, Can learn from their local Alzheimer's Association or their local medical center about this population and that's really the most important first step and Then to also talk directly with people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers about what's needed and um, And then develop the program accordingly
3: it was so nice meeting you, and I hope we'll see you next month. All right.
1: We, we leave these giveaways around our house,
3: mm-hmm.
1: and people talk, where did you get it?
4: <laughs> it stimulates conversation in the home.
3: I have them in an album, and we
5: enjoy looking at them. Well, first of all, getting you out of bed <laughs> is, a, is a trial. It really is, until I tell you we're coming a moment. And I will go without you if I have to. <laughs> and how he loves it so much that he will come. And it's so stimulating afterwards too. You feel you feel refreshed,
4: yeah,
1: enriched, enriched, yeah, yeah.
5: and alive. Yeah.
1: Well, <clears throat> I think you know not everybody lives near the Museum of Modern Art, but. The Hopkins Center has a slightly uh, a program slightly related to this, as many increasing numbers of museums do around. around. Uh, and again, you may not be like those dozen or so people there at the MoMA, but the point is that individuals even with advanced, relatively advanced dementia, none of these people seem to be late stage dementia, but mild to moderate certainly are able to respond to things that are reaching them through something other than the standard declarative memory channels that are so damaged in this disease. This can be found on the web at that website, by the way, if you're interested in looking at this www.moma.org, Museum of Modern Art, slash meeting. they wrote up a nice report, which is there, and they found that during the week following the museum visit, people had fewer emotional problems, higher mood, increase in sense of social support, and better self-esteem. I would translate that or say that that certainly goes along with an increase in quality of life. And I think the same can be said about the effect of music. A lot of... A lot of the works that have looked, a lot of the work that has looked at what impact can music have looks at lowering uh, agitation and so forth. But I, and that's wonderful when that can happen and allow us to avoid using native medications when uh, something might, else might be available. But I think over and above any effect on specific neuropsychiatric symptoms is this very difficult to measure issue of quality of life that is is really something we can count on with focusing on these preserved abilities. So so how can all of this affect how we work with people with Alzheimer's? Just have a few minutes left. And this is really the part that's a work in progress because I'm still working on how to make this translation. It seems to me it's very clear that there is an awful lot of people left when they have Alzheimer's disease. Not just a lot that's damaged, but there's an awful lot of water in that half-filled glass. And how we work with that is something we really need to be exploring and uh, it's something we need to exploit as well as explore. We need to maintain a focus on what's preserved rather than what's missing. Having an attitude about that is really a shift in how we think about patients and I think that's as important for us as clinicians who may be involved in caring for these patients and for their family members, that's as important that attitude shift about focusing on what's there rather than what's not there as any of the specific activities that are pursued. But I do think it's important to determine what the individual's preserved abilities are. Some of that needs to come from the caregiver, clearly, especially in somewhat more advanced patients. But I think that's a very valuable exercise for the caregiver to go through. And this, again, is hard to read up there, perhaps. But this is just a a first brush at this, uh, an inventory of preserved abilities and traits. And so we have a, we look at what are things that this individual likes to do, Joe Smith and his primary caregiver, Ann Smith. Uh, Well, what Joe has always liked is, as you can, hard to make out over here, but he liked to play tennis. He used to do it in the past. used to watch football, going for long walks. His hobbies included woodworking and doing jigsaw puzzles. What special talents did he have? He used to sing solos in the church choir. What kind of traits or characteristics would your loved one have that help define who he really was? Well, he loves to talk to people. He's very neat and tidy. has a great sense of humor. So those are the things that the caregiver needs to work on. Not right at the moment, but this is something that ought to be done over time, it seems to me, with thought and with care. And then looking at, well, he's done them all in the past. Does he still do them? And does he do them with the caregiver? Because it's not enough in the case of somebody who, let's say, lives at home with a spouse. It's not enough to find things for them to do. It's not like being an activities director on a cruise ship where you just got one activity after another. But it's a matter of interaction. It's a matter of activities that are meaningful for them. And so what what does this person do that they can also still do with the spouse? And and this is where this is still being worked on. I hope a year from now I'll be able to talk in more detail about how to actually translate this into what we can do with patients and have families do with their loved ones to, to really change the focus from what's wrong to what's still right. And how do we work with that to maximize quality of life. Will any of this slow down the illness? Boy, I'd sure like to think that was true. I don't really think it is true, but I don't know that. But I think what it does provide is a sense of quality of life, and as I mentioned before, oops, what happened here? What happened here? I seem to have lost that last slide, uh, but basically what it said was just how do we focus on those aspects of the individual that are still present in order to lessen stigma in order to change our attitude and the attitude of those around the individual. And uh, hopefully, more on uh, on that in the future. So I'm glad to stop here. Sorry for whatever happened with this last slide. It was was best slide of the whole bunch. (laughs) It seemed to have disappeared. It says, Microsoft PowerPoint has encountered a problem and needs to close. We're sorry for the inconvenience. Uh, so am I. But uh, I'm happy to take questions if either those of you here in the room or anybody out in the Netherlands here has something they'd like to ask. Not that there's a whole lot left. Maybe we've gone over time. There's a question there on the yeah. in the middle of the top part of the screen.
3: OK. Uh, uh,
5: hi, Dr. So this is Bernie. And my hi, question Bernie. is. This, Hi. You talked um, a lot about Alzheimer's disease. Does this vary when
1: um, you're talking about other types of dementia? Well, I think there are probably many similarities from one dementia to the other. One of the areas that in subcortical dementias and particularly in Parkinson's dementia, there may be many more problems with um, uh, uh, procedural memory because of the damage in the basal ganglia that occurs in Parkinson's disease, although I don't think it's, a, it's completely gone, and it may be different elements of the basal ganglia that are involved. but I, So I would say that this approach is worth applying to people with any kind of dementia, indeed worth applying to anyone. But it's probably, I thought it through in most detail in Alzheimer's, but I would think that it probably has validity to a greater or lesser extent in other dementias as well. Does that answer your question? Good, Okay. Other questions here in the room or elsewhere? I have
5: a couple of friends who are dealing with dementia with their spouse, one with their husband and the other with his wife and it had fascinated me that neither one would read anything about Alzheimer's and both of them are are Alzheimer's and I found that sad because I thought you know at least they could be prepared but they were constant and they are still concentrating so much on the positive and what the spouse has left. They have both said and they don't even know one another I don't want to anticipate What's going to happen? It may not happen, or I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. I, I don't know.
1: It's interesting. I think you know the fact that they're so focused on what's still there is great. I don't think it's. I don't think you have to be one or the other. I think it. The ideal situation might be to focus a great deal on what's still there, but to know what the to know is everything you can about the disease that you're dealing with. Otherwise, there's certainly a certain amount of denial that's active and. And things are going to come up and hit you in the face if you're not prepared for them, inevitably. Um, but more power to them that they're focusing so hard on what's there. Yeah. Amazing. Any other
5: comments or questions? They mentioned that the oh, after, um, I guess it was after the art experiment, that it lasted for about a week. Is, is that true with the music? Is is that typical or is that just
1: (coughs) various studies have seen various effects some studies show benefit only while the music is being played most studies show some lingering effect of varying amounts I don't know what the average length would be I'm sure it's quite variable from person to person again I think we can look at it in two ways one is Looking at this as a tool to reduce agitation, let's say, very important and very useful. How long will it work for that? hard, hard to know, and it's going to be variable from person to person. Of course, if you're at home, somebody can be listening to music all the time. In a nursing home, they may have the music therapist come in only so often. But the music, that's the nice thing about music it is such a readily available, easy to use tool with headphones or with speakers. There are some patients who don't like headphones. For example, the man I mentioned who has such a sense of humor, his wife tried the headphones. She rip them right off and couldn't stand the headphones. But many people, so it, it, you have to do it variably. Um, so that's one way to look at it as sort of a treatment f- uh, just like a pill. The other thing is to say this is an experience that enhances quality of life in the moment. So much of Alzheimer's is in the moment. You have a good moment, you have a good day, that's what you can be thankful for. It's gone tomorrow, it won't be remembered, and one often hears that. Somebody will have a, a really great visit with somebody, it went very well, and tomorrow they'll say, gee, I never see so-and-so. They were just there yesterday, very frustrating. But you have to not say, not to expect things to have a lingering effect, it's in the moment. And. Perfectly valid, it seems to me. It would be nice if we could make it last all the time, but if we can't, just take what we can get. Anything else? All right. Well, why don't we stop then? Thank you very much for your attention.
5: Thank you. Thank you.